Welcome to We Talk Structures podcast. Here's your host, Maitili Gadge, with today's episode on structural dynamics in infrastructure with Nicholas Haritos. He has been a long-serving staff member since 1974 at the University of Melbourne in civil and structural engineering, where following his retirement in 2010, he is now a principal fellow. Nicholas currently holds honorary positions as a Registered Engineers Australia National Assessor for Charter Accreditation, an adjunct professor at Swinburne University of Technology, and is also the Managing Director of Strucomp Proprietary Limited Consulting Engineers. He is the developer of the Technolab Experiential Learning System for Statics, Mechanics of Solids, Materials, Structures, and Dynamics. This innovative series of Technolab products is manufactured and marketed by Strucomp PL right here in Melbourne. Nicholas has published widely in the fields of experimental modal analysis applications to condition monitoring of structures and in the dynamic response characteristics of land-based and offshore structures to wind, waves and general operational loading, human-induced vibrations of footbridges, floors and stadia experiential, hands-on, learning for engineers. He has delivered specialist short courses in Australia, New Zealand and Italy. Hi, Nicholas. So we'll start with the first question, that is, what's the background do you have that has led you to gain skills and experience in structural dynamics in infrastructure? Thank you, Mathili, for inviting me on this podcast. And, uh, yeah, I'll take your first question. Um, Just to give you a bit of a background of myself, I studied at the University of Melbourne for um, my three degrees, in fact, my undergraduate degree in civil engineering, uh, my master's degree, and that was in wind excitation of structures. So there's a dynamic element of that, of course. And my PhD is in in the dynamics of offshore structures. So, again, dynamics is the flavour of my research and my research degree programs. I then stayed on at the University of Melbourne, my alma mater, to become a lecturer on a short-term basis, um, a three- to five-year contract, which was renewed to a continuing appointment, and I stayed there until I retired in 2010. Post-2010, I've retained my relationship with the University of Melbourne and have extended at the time to also include the University, well, Swinburne University of Technology and Victoria University, uh, who needed someone on an emergency basis, again, to teach a subject that uh, involves structural dynamics. Upon my retirement, I also was interested in developing teaching equipment that uh, relates to mechanics, structural mechanics and structural dynamics. That's awesome. I also run my own consulting company, which many of the consulting elements of which included structural dynamics issues that I had to troubleshoot for clients. So as you can see, over my entire academic lifetime, I've, uh, structural dynamics has been a key backbone to the work that I've been doing. That's great. Okay, so here's the next question. 
why structural dynamics is considered important in the design of infrastructures? Well, I think um, what we have found in history is that our buildings are becoming taller and taller, our bridges are becoming longer and longer, our floor spans are becoming also longer, and most of the infrastructure, whether it's mining in the mining area, whether it's in civil infrastructure, is in that sort of vein extending spans. And as a result of extending these spans, we find that the dynamic response of structures is more prevalent than it used to be. So the in history, in very olden times, let's say, our structures were very robust, they were big, they were uh, very rigid, and structural vibration wasn't much of an issue, except perhaps uh, in the days of the Roman Empire when newly built bridges would have soldiers marching over them and they were told to break step because on occasions they found that, yes, you could get vibrations when the stepping frequency was right to excite a bridge structure. Other than that, there's there's very few examples in past history, significant history, of um, structural dynamics being an issue. It's only in the last century or so that structural dynamics has emerged as a subject of study, principally because vibrations, which is an obvious outcome from uh, a structural dynamic interaction of a structure with whatever the uh, forcing mechanism might be, becomes visible or um, noticeable or even annoying. So that's why we then have to uh, start dealing with these issues when they arise. Oh, that's awesome. Like, that's so much valuable information you have provided us. So what type of infrastructure can exhibit dynamic behavior? Would you please elaborate on this? Yes, of course. I I gave an insight there that most of the infrastructure has, in fact, uh, becoming more and more susceptible. One of the key areas that that I do a lot of consulting in is on um, floor vibrations, office floors in particular where you would like to have open space, which means that you have fewer columns to support the floor system. The floor system itself is a, is a bit more, let's say, bouncy as a way of uh, yes. using a coining word for dynamics. And so that when people walk on the floor, it could be that they can generate small vibrations in general that uh, are more noticeable, especially by office workers who are sitting in front of a computer and they find their screen is now sort of shaking a little bit because somebody walked past It can be uh, minor in that respect, but it can also be quite major in different applications. For example, we've all seen the movie in physics, I would imagine, in the subject of physics, of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which, in fact, due to vibrations, high vibrations caused by wind at the time, had very complex dynamic behaviour to the point that the uh, amplitudes of vibration were so large that they had to shut down the bridge from traffic and on a particular day where the conditions were right, it seemed like those amplitudes were so high that the bridge actually fell down. It it was a suspension bridge and um, even though it was designed in a wind tunnel uh, with 100 kilometre per hour winds, 
sorry, 100 mile per hour winds, I should say, in the wind tunnel, it, it, it appeared to have fallen down as a result of a windy day where the wind speeds were only 40 miles per hour on the average. And uh, that's where wind engineering became a bit more of a an upgraded topic in structural engineering um, to, to study wind and its effects because it's not the mean wind that was the problem there. And that's what was being modelled in the wind tunnel, steady mean wind. It's the fluctuations in the wind, the turbulence in the wind that is important or can be important. And in the case of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, led to its actual collapse. The complex dynamic response of twisting, the up and down motion, as well as some lateral motion in combination together, these effects and and these um, amplitudes were so large that the bridge became unsafe and the whole structure fell down. All right. Yes. Since then, there's been a lot more attention paid to the turbulence in wind and how it can promote dynamic response in structures. So not only can it occur in bridges, of course, it can occur also in long, tall chimney stacks. And uh, there the vibration can be very different. Different types of wind effects can uh, induce vibrations in structures. In the case of tall building stacks, one of the problems there could be vortex shedding. So the wind forms vortices, and if, if they are un- more or less uniform over the, the, the full length of the uh, chimney and, and they peel off at the right frequency, they can, uh, they can produce resonance in the uh, chimney and introduce very high amplitudes which can fail the chimney stack this too has become topic of interest to those who build chimney stacks and ways of trying to reduce those effects of vortex shedding is to introduce helical strikes, which is a patented method. I think it was Scruton who patented <clears throat> this approach. What they do is they break up the vortices into smaller physical size and they're not uniform over the length of the chimney stack and, and, and so the effects are much, much reduced. Dynamic response, as it has emerged from different sources, people walking on floors or over bridges, so people excitation, if you like, and wind excitation has uh, brought attention to the fact that uh, not only can we get unserviceable response, so, you know, the, the structure is still safe from the point of view of not failing, but is annoying to people in the building or is annoying on people on the bridge and in tall buildings is annoying for people in tall buildings um, who might be paying very big money to be at the very top of the building. Um, the, yes. And uh, finding that that's where the response is the most. <laughs> so, you know, yes. supposed to be the best real estate, but in terms of comfort, it, it isn't the best point to be on the rooftop of a, uh, a very tall building when it can yes. vibrate under significant wind. Okay, so that gives yes. you an idea of um, uh, the sort of infrastructure. It's really broadband and it's really to do with how susceptible in terms of its vibration characteristics it could be to the source or the forcing mechanism yes. 
that are available to excite it in that way. And, and yes, the, we, we can find examples from a number of areas of structure engineering, including mining engineering, including offshore structures, cables in offshore structures, or the that maybe in a tension leg platform, for example, they can be whipped around. Electricity cables can also be whipped around by the wind because of their dynamic uh, characteristics being conducive to that form of excitation for the style of wind that might be blowing on them and, and maybe other characteristics that are associated with the structure, the structural form itself. But by far the most important is um, the fact that we are we have less massive and less rigid structures than we used to over time, and that is a trend that's still occurring. We always want to go taller, always want to go longer, and, and those sorts of uh, geometry changes, in, and including material changes that we're using, appear to be such that they lead to dynamic excitation being a, a consideration and, and something that needs to be dealt with in the design. That's great. So under what conditions can dynamic response in structures become a problematic? What would you say for this? Well, I've sort of hinted at it uh, to a certain point. Yeah. The uh, reasons why it, it happens is, is due to the, the structural properties, the dynamic properties of the structure. And what are what influences the dynamic properties of the structure, as, as I've hinted, the mass, its mass, and also its stiffness, how rigid it is or how flexible it is. So the mass distribution of the structure is important, how it's distributed throughout the structure, and the stiffness and how it is distributed throughout the structure also has a bearing on its uh, structural behaviour. The key things that this... Um, leads to is a series of natural frequencies and mode shapes in which the structure would respond if there was a sinusoidal forcing at that frequency. Of course, the lowest frequency, what we call the first mode, it, the natural frequency of it and its mode shape often tends to look like very closely to the static displacement of that structure, the displaced shape under its own self-weight. That's what it often looks like. Not always. There will be some special cases. So if you can visualise how the structure would deflect under its own weight, that often gives you a very good idea of what the first mode shape looks like, the shape in which it would vibrate had it been forced at the, the first mode frequency of that structure, frequency at which it likes to vibrate in that shape. In general, structures will have many degrees of freedom. There'll be a second mode which has its its own peculiar mode shape and that second mode will also have its own peculiar natural frequency. And so whenever a structure is excited by whatever the forcing mechanism might be, it will vibrate in an assembly of all of those modes. And the the proportion of, the, of those modes that are participating in the response depends upon the forcing mechanisms and, and their frequency characteristics. So if we have a sinusoid, that means a sinusoidal forcing, that means a force which is operating only at one frequency and at a particular amplitude, it will force the structure 
to uh, respond in that amp- in that frequency and in its an assemblage of mode shapes. However, if that sinusoidal forcing happens to be at one of the natural frequencies of the structure, then that forcing will produce only response at that modal frequency uh, and with that mode shape. This is something that we know from the modelling of, of, of the dynamics of, of, of structures and their dynamic properties, their modal analysis, as it's called, as the general field of modal analysis. That's when we can have really problematic conditions, when uh, the nature of the forcing that is associated with that structure, whether it be people walking on a floor or whether it be wind excitation, which, as I hinted earlier, is really not a steady wind. It's steady with fluctuations, so it's got a mean and fluctuations associated with it, turbulence, and has a so-called wind spectrum. So it has energy across a a broad range of frequencies, and depending upon the, the wind strength and depending upon the surrounding roughness conditions of the terrain, the properties of the uh, turbulence are influenced as as are the properties of the whole wind itself and the way it uh, changes with height in its mean and dynamic and its um, dynamic components which are its um, turbulence components so yes if there's energy available in your forcing from or within a small range that encompasses the uh, natural frequency of the structure, a natural frequency of that structure, then that that particular frequency will get excited, that particular modal frequency will be excited and the structure will have an even bigger amplitude of component, a component amplitude at, of that particular mode shape. So it could dwarf the others that are present. Now, how big that amplitude is, that resonating feature, is governed by the damping, and uh, damping is something that is inherent in the structural form, the material that's used, in other aspects of the structure, and it's very hard to, to, to come up with a number for, for damping, but suffice to say that it tends to be small, and what do we mean by small? We, we mean in terms of relative to critical damping, which you'll need to find out more about, but it's a percentage of critical damping and, and and typically damping could be of the order of less than 1%, believe it or not, for, let's say, towers, welded towers or, or even um, bolted towers or, or, or chimneys and could be something like 2% and it can vary for different modes, but typically it could be as low as half a percent even for for uh, towers, which means that the the meaning of that, the significance of that rather, if it's half a percent, for example, and you are applying a force, sinusoidal force, at the natural frequency of a structure, the amplitude of response would be one divided by twice that ratio. So in, t- in terms of half a percent, it would be one divided by two by point double naught five which becomes 0.001, and so 1 on 0.001 becomes 100. So what does that mean, the significance of that? It's suggesting that the response of the structure would be 100 times 
the static value of that response for a force if it were applied sinusoidally on that structure at the natural frequency of the structure. If we applied statically, you'd get the static response. If you applied it sinusoidally to coincide with the natural frequency of that structure, that structure will, you start, of course, and it will slowly grow to be a 100 times the amplitude and, and vibrating at its natural frequency, the same frequency as the forcing function, as we said, it's sinusoidal, and produce a 100 times the static amplitude of that structure. Can I use an analogy here? Um, imagine having a child on a swing. When you push the, the swing at the frequency of the swing, you'll notice that the amplitude gets bigger. I mean, that's how you get the, the whole thing to start up and get going. After a while, you'll find that for a particular amplitude of response, you only need a small force. Every time yeah. the swing comes back, it you don't need a small force because you don't want to keep it growing, of course. You've got a child on the swing, for goodness sake. Yeah, you don't want, right. to, don't want them to fall off. So that, yeah. that gives you a, a, an idea. It's not a sinusoidal force in this case, but it's, it's, it's a small duration force at the right time. And, and uh, that, that's how we get to get bigger amplitudes. And, yes, it's governed by the um, how, how big a force you now need to keep the swing going is governed by the frictional losses, the damping losses that you get at each vibration, at each um, swing level, at each amplitude, at each at each wave return shape of uh, the um, oscillation, at each oscillation. Yeah, they're the important features. When those amplitudes become large enough that people are uncomfortable, problematic, under what conditions that happens. It often happens because of resonant-type influences. When people walk on floors, for example, it's a bit like the child on a swing. You have a, a thump and a thump each time a, a foot falls onto the floor at a regular pace, if they're walking at a regular pace. If that pace, in this instance, is an integer fraction or multiple, of the uh, frequency, the first mode frequency, then you will get build-up of uh, response. And if that response is big enough for people to notice and feel uncomfortable about, it's um, a serviceability issue. And and if I can go back just a second uh, for the um, child on the swing situation, you don't have to to push the swing at every oscillation. You can push it at every second oscillation or every third oscillation to maintain a reasonable swinging amplitude. Well, that's a similar situation with people walking on the floor. If their stepping frequency is at a integer multiple of the natural frequency of the floor or, an, or even a natural or even an integer rather than factor, sorry, an integer fraction of it, then you can also excite the floor in that way, in that similar way. But resonance often has a large bearing on excessive vibrations and excessive vibration levels. Seldom do we nowadays get ourselves into a situation where our structure is at risk of large damage or failure as a result of um, dynamic excitation. And when the few occasions when that happens, it's because something grossly has, something has been 
missed, a gross design feature has been missed and it nowadays is rare and hope, and uh, we, we obviously are pleased that it's rare and it's probably due to us as engineers being more understanding that vibrations, structural dynamic response is something that we should deal with. Now, I've spoken mainly about wind. I touched a little bit about waves and I touched a uh, a bit as well on footfall excitation. Of course, there is another very important area of structural response due, dynamic response due to excitation, and that is from ground motion. And where do we get ground motion? We get it from earthquakes principally uh, as, as bigger values, but we also get dynamic vibrations from machinery, ground-borne vibrations from machinery. I mean, uh, my own home, uh, my street often gets some larger trucks coming through it because they want to bypass the traffic as they come by the our, our home. Uh, you can see and hear the windows vibrating a little bit. And I think we've all experienced that. And, and, uh, I mean, it's annoying, but, you know, we're not worried about the building falling down. But we've also experienced some tremors uh, in our building, in our home. Yeah. We don't get earthquakes very often in, in, in Melbourne, but we do get some uh, smaller ones and uh, they do occur. We do get earthquakes, but of smaller levels and of different types than what we get in, let's say, California and New Zealand. We have interplate earthquakes rather than interplate earthquakes and, uh, they can be very severe in in terms of the biggest ones we can get in, let's say, a 5,000-year return period or 10,000-year return period in some cases than, in, than for the interplate earthquake conditions. But in our lifetime, chances are we're not going to see anything like that, of course. Uh, there's a very small chance that we'll see anything like that. But we tend to still design our buildings not for what we expect in a 50-year return period lifetime, sorry, 50-year return period earthquake, which might be the lifetime of a building nowadays, uh, housing in particular, office buildings, they pull them down every 50 years, 100 years or something like that. We tend to use a much longer return period so that we have a smaller risk that a damaging earthquake will occur to our structures when we design them. And even for wind, we do the same thing, but Perhaps we don't look at the 5,000 or 10,000-year return period earthquake, sorry, uh, wind, as we do for earthquakes. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, another very important area. It's an area that I am a little bit conversant in, but I I don't concentrate my my efforts on that aspect of it because many of my good friends, uh, academic friends, are already experts in in that field, and, and so I tend to look at, other areas of dynamic excitation of structures, including offshore structures, when when you physically can see the waves often yeah. in the ocean. They can be very complex depending upon the winds that have generated them. But if you blur your eyes a little bit, you can see some sort of frequency that these waves are coming at depending upon where you are located in the ocean, whether it's very deep or or not so deep. The waves have different characteristics. And, uh, yeah, you you can see that 
more or less that there seems to be a preferred frequency, if you like, associated with waves, and that too, if if it is an integer multiple or integer fraction of whatever structure you're looking at that's in the, in the path of these waves or in the region of these waves, that structure can be excited. When I say integer fraction, if your wave waves are, let's say, one every 10 seconds, so it's got a 10-second period, you would uh, be looking at um, 0.1 hertz as being a critical first-mode frequency or even second-mode if it's a very flexible offshore structure. You would be looking at the conditions that might dynamically excite such a structure. And um, if that structure had a frequency of, um, let's say, 0.2 hertz, yes, it can be excited. It's an integer factor of the 0.1. Now, given a different situation, though, suppose you had a ship that is moored with very long cables. The first mode frequency, because they're very flexible, the cables, the first mode frequency of that structure could be 0.01. In other words, its, it's mode, its um, period could be 100 seconds because it's very slow. It's, it's got these cables which are, are very light. Well, that's a factor of 10 on the uh, 0.1. It's divided by 10 now. So it's an integer fraction of the frequency of forcing. You can get excitation there as well. I mention this because this is the areas where some errors have been made, if you like, because or persons that are involved in, in exploring the dynamic characteristics of the structure and its susceptibility to vibrations have seldom come across. So it's not just energy at the natural frequency of a structure, but energy that might be available at a fraction of that frequency or at a multiple of that frequency that can also create excessive response of that structure and may also lead to failure if it's not understood and catered for properly. Yeah, that's right. So as an engineer, what measures would we take for dynamic response? To reduce those levels? Yeah. Yes. We've got to understand what the um, problem is. Is it because we've, we do have forcing at a particular a frequency that is exciting our structure, so it's resonating our structure, and what that source is? You look at the source, it could be, for example, in a building, it could be something like the air conditioning machinery at the, at the rooftop happens to be operating at a frequency that is a multiple of uh, the natural frequency of the structure happens to be an exact integer multiple. So a simple change there in the way that operates may get you out of trouble. So it could be something as simple as that, but it could be more than that. It could be, yes, I can't, I can't get out of this problem by going to the source of it alone. So you need to deal with the structural aspects of it. And, and one way to, to deal with it, in, especially in floors, is to stiffen the floor up. When you have a, a big open floor plan situation in, in an office building and, and you have vibrations that are excessive, a very simple way of dealing with it is to double the stiffness. How would you double the stiffness? You could easily double the stiffness, approximately double the stiffness, by introducing a column in the middle of the span. And what does that do? It ties 
that span to the span of the, the floor above you. And, and so now that's double the stiffness, okay? But it's also double the mass because you, you really, I mentioned mass distribution and stiffness distribution. You've also doubled the mass. It will still be operating at the same frequency, but if the, the forcing won't necessarily be at both floors happening at the same time, you've already reduced your vibration levels if the excitation that you're looking at isn't occurring simultaneously at both levels. So that's simple to do, but architects and, and people using that floor don't want that often. They, they want it to be open, not even a small column that just simply ties the two floors together. They don't want it. Well, under those circumstances, when you have no other choice, if you can't change the, the stiffness property of the structure and you don't want to change the mass distribution of the structure where the work areas are, for example, to push them around to make the distribution of the mass a bit different on the floor, which might get you out of out of it a little bit, out of that coincidence of uh, the forcing energy and the response frequency of the structure to get you out of that little zone. Well, the only other choice you have then, if you can't change the stiffness, you can't change the mass, is the damping. And how do you increase damping? Well, you can introduce purpose-built dampers, which are designed, for example, tune mass dampers, which are designed to operate at the uh, excitation frequency. And what they do is they remove the energy that would otherwise, not all of it, but a significant amount of or they can, remove the, a significant amount of energy that would otherwise be available to excite the floor itself and produce annoying vibrations to a level, to half that level typically, and so it doesn't become a nuisance to the structure anymore and to people on, on, on that floor and, and place that motion into the uh, damper itself. You might need more than one damper, but the idea is that the damper takes over the resonant features or, or some of the resonant features of, of the excitation and, and uh, removes it from what would otherwise been stayed with the floor itself. So it feeds off the floor and, and becomes resonant itself. You introduce a means of removing that energy from it as well. But you need, you need space to introduce these dampers because uh, you don't want to put them on the floor. People say, well, what's this? It's a damper. Why? Why is it there? It's because it's, it's, uh, the floors would vibrate even more if we didn't have one. Oh, I don't like this. You know, it becomes noticeable yes. and they become conscious of what's going on. You can introduce it on the inter-story space that is usually available for services. So between the floor and the false ceiling of, uh, yes. The floor below, if there's sufficient space. And at Swinburne, um, I've been working with uh, Imad Gad and John Wilson there over several years now with PhD students who have developed a tune mass damper that we have, in fact, used in, in some floor spaces in buildings in Melbourne and also in the UK to reduce the level of vibrations in the floor of the problematic floors to about half what they would have otherwise been under favourable circumstances because we were able to have a metre square close to the centre of the uh, of that floor space, which is where most of the amplitude of vibration occurs, 
we could introduce a damper in that one metre square space so long as it had more than about 200 millimetres of clear space over that one metre square. We can we were able to introduce such a damper in those circumstances and we have done so, as I say, in, in some floors and that can reduce the vibrations. We sometimes, if we're alert enough as engineers, we can see in transmission lines what looks like a dumbbell close to the uh, poles of a, a very long transmission line. Well, that's actually a damper which helps arrest, to a large extent, what the dynamic uh, response would have been of that cable under wind excitation. So there are instances where we, we may be able to see some dampers. Some very tall buildings, as you might be aware, have slosh dampers in them to arrest the vibrations. Taipei 101 has a great big ball mass which has actuators connected to it and it's able to use that large mass and the damper uh, to become a damper for, um, in that instance, mainly earthquake response and uh, has been successful, has sort of uh, gone through a couple of earthquakes that may have caused damage uh, but didn't because the damper did its job and reduced those vibration levels significantly. Yeah, that's right. So that, I, I think damper is the good choice. And yes. Um, when when you can't do a simple structural fix or a, or detune something, um, as I say, something simple like that, it, it possibly is the last resort solution if uh, you have too yeah. many other constraints on you. Yeah, that's right. So what would you like to say in conclusion for structural dynamics in infrastructure? Well, May I just uh, make a warning that um, to understand structural dynamics and uh, to be able to model structures properly and to have a, a broad appreciation doesn't happen overnight. It does take a while. It takes a long time and, and it takes experience. And that means you have to be involved with uh, modelling and working with someone who is exploring structural dynamics possible structural dynamics issues for a particular structure. Of course, you can learn about structural dynamics and no one's born with knowledge and skills. You, you need to, to learn these and universities do provide courses. Some only provide a small introduction and usually, often it's in first year where they do a, a dynamics subject together with a static subject because they've got a broad first-year intake and mechanical engineers are more interested in, in dynamics, not so much structural dynamics as as it would be dynamics of machines where they have motion of links and stuff like that, which um, is, is a field on, on its own to some degree. But in terms of structural dynamics, they may only have a small introduction. Some universities do offer courses in structural dynamics and earthquake engineering, and again, it's sort of later in, in the treatment of their overall degree courses. Sometimes it's a postgraduate only treatment. And in some cases, it yep. may be an offering also to final year students. The thing is with structural dynamics, it brings together practically all of the undergraduate teaching you would have had in the field of mechanics 
and in the field of structural modeling and in the field of mathematics. It brings together second-order differential equations, sometimes fourth-order differential equations, depending upon the method you're using to model the um, structural features that you're looking at. It involves understanding stiffness and statics very well. So if you can model a structure, structural form for statics, well, to model it for dynamics involves another element there, not just the stiffness, it involves also the mass distribution. So yes, there are computer programs that will give you modeling capabilities for modal analysis, but you really need to know what you're doing and you really need to have that understanding. Now, it goes further because often in design, for example, we need to deal with limitations of what we're doing and understanding probabilities. We deal with, as I mentioned earlier, return periods of of different phenomena, earthquakes, the um, wind, but we also deal with the actual structural response itself probabilities of exceedance of certain levels, for example, we need to, that's when we we get annoying features in the response is when it's the level of the response is above a certain limit uh, that we, we might apply to say that it is annoying. Once it gets above this level, it's annoying to people in the office. Well, you need to be uh, familiar with the statistical concepts of how to deal with coming up with the numbers that would place you in certain regions of uh, acceptability or otherwise of response levels. So it, it's not a subject that can be treated early in a piece. It's often a postgraduate subject, as I say, but it's becoming a more and more relevant and more and more important subject in time with, as I mentioned very early in the piece, with the fact that we are producing longer spans, taller buildings, more flexible structures, introducing newer materials that are lighter. All these things tend to make structural forms that we produce a lot more susceptible to environmental loading and to operational loading that has, may I say in conclusion too, that... um, Because I'm very sort of um, conscious of uh, the learning of structural engineering at our universities, in the last 10 years approximately, maybe it's eight, I've been involved with producing hands-on learning equipment for statics, mechanics and dynamics. And this is so you can actually observe structural Form a very simple structural form. It might be a, a cantilever, it might be a, a beam, it might be two beams, a continuous over two spans, it could be a frame, a number of different scenarios of structural forms that are treated both statically and can be treated dynamically in hands-on by students working in pairs. That's my biggest passion at the moment is to try and produce and extend the number of experiments that I have that enable students to observe and actually not just see these things, actually take measurements and relate those measurements and observations to theoretical models and and learn that way. So rather than just have theory produced for you and some example, worked examples of problems, 
to actually have physical models that you can access and use. And I make these available to universities. Of course, they're, 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 um, they have to purchase them. Um, and I've also been producing a website which is called mechanics-lab.com, which will have a repository, which acts as a repository of lessons in dynamics and lessons in in um, stability, lessons in mechanics, mechanics of solids, uh, mechanics of materials, and lessons in statics, including plastic collapse. So I'm trying to cover the broad range of structural behaviour that is treated in undergraduate courses and beyond postgraduate courses through hands-on experimentation through my system, which I call Technolab. Some universities have purchased my equipment already in this short time frame, and, and um, because of COVID, obviously, <laughs> the last two years, yeah. very few universities have been able to even have campus access for their students. So That's um, right. in, uh, in, in uh, years to come, I'm hoping there will be sufficient interest uh, by universities to purchase my equipment and use it and, and students will definitely gain from it in, in a bigger way than just the presentation of theory, just the presentation of worked examples and just uh, some videos of, again, illustrating what's going on, so demonstrations. It's geared towards experiential learning, hands-on learning. Yeah. All right, Nicholas, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode on Structural Dynamics in Infrastructure and see you in the next episode. Till then, stay tuned and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave an awesome rating and review on iTunes. Website links in the description.